Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, may the message that I am about to deliver reflect your will and your wisdom, not mine. And may the words that I choose be appropriate to that message. I pray this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. My father was a soldier. In fact, he was a career soldier. He joined the army as a teenager and served in the army until he retired. And so we heard a lot of stories about army life. We experienced it too. And one of the stories I remember was my father telling me about a time he was teaching the officer cadets down the road at uh, RMC in Kingston. And they posed a particular problem to this group of officer cadets. You, the officer cadets, have arrived at a gorge. It's so wide and it's so deep. You have a certain number of vehicles, you have a certain number of men, you have a certain amount of material, a certain number of pieces of iron of different dimensions, a certain number of pieces of wood of different dimensions, a certain lengths of rope, all these things. You have to get across in an hour, you have an hour to solve this problem. So of course the officer cadets went off into their little groups and decided, you know, how they're going to join these pieces of wood and metal together so they can get across this gorge. And at the end of the hour, my father gathers them together and says, well, have you come up with a solution? Well, they sort of had some half solutions. So my father said, the answer to this problem is very clear. How do you get across this gorge? The answer, Sergeant Major, get us across this gorge. There's a message there. Well, there's more than one message. But the particular message is that if you want something done, go to the person who knows how to do it. And in the case of the Roman army, the person you go to when you want something done is a centurion. Now, what exactly is a centurion? I know the simple answer is uh, it's, a, it's a military uh, officer. I'm going to take a time out here. Does anybody follow the game of cricket? What's a centurion? Somebody who gets 100 runs in an inning. That's right, but that's not the centurion we're talking about. He's more than just a military officer. In the Roman army, you could join enlist when you were 17, but you enlisted for 25 years, not like now when you have contracts for four or five years. And you could become a centurion after 10 years, but mostly you became a centurion after 15 years, so that by the time you had advanced through the ranks, you were knowledgeable, you were experienced, you were battle-hardened. Most centurions were indeed promoted from the ranks, over 90% of them. Yes, you could become a centurion if you had a nice civic post, like uh, if you were a magistrate. And as in any system, once in a while, if you got a letter of recommendation from somebody who was a senator or so on, you could get in. But mo mostly it was based on advancing through the ranks. And uh, the Roman historian Polybius says that centurions, since they were chosen by merit, were not remarkable so much for their daring courage, but for the, their deliberation, constancy, and strength of mind. In fact, 
Roman generals would often consult with their centurions about matters of military tactics and strategy. Julius Caesar was noteworthy for doing this. But the centurion was more than just a military officer. When they were in garrison, the centurion would lead groups of soldiers who would build roads, build viaducts, build aqueducts, even in one case possibly building a synagogue. In fact, Nero once commissioned a centurion to build a canal across Corinth. They also worked in the civic administration in different provinces. In the governor's office, you would have a whole host of uh, centurions who would actually carry out the work of civil administration because there weren't enough civilian administrators. There were also regional, what they called regional centurions, whereby the governor would sub-delegate to a centurion to look after the administrative affairs of towns and cities away from where the governor was based. Centurions also carried out all sorts of special missions. They would go and settle disputes between tribes who were supposedly both allied with Rome. They would go and deliver messages of warning to tribes who might have been opposed to Rome. They would go and escort hostages from different places back to Rome. Because as you know, in order to ensure that peace existed between Rome and different other tribes, they would send hostages to ensure that they maintained the peace. And indeed, they were often used to go and arrest Roman officials who had transgressed the law, such as in one case the prefect in Egypt. So, if you had to deal with the Romans in either a civil or a military capacity, you had to deal with a centurion. An interesting fact, uh, I know you probably aren't too interested in this fact, but I found it interesting because I didn't realize it was true. Prior to 70 AD, there were no Roman legions based in Judea. So there were none of what we traditionally think as Roman occupiers. The troops based in Judea were all auxiliary troops. These were troops recruited from the different provinces and different tribes throughout the Roman Empire. They were composed of non-Roman citizens, with a couple of exceptions. And whereas the legions of Rome were heavy infantry, the auxiliary troops were everything else that the Romans needed. Light infantry, cavalry, archers, slingers, spearmen, scouts. Those tasks were all designated to auxiliary units. The name of the units usually indicated where they came from. And in Judea at the time that we're looking at, roughly 4 AD to 70 AD, there was one cavalry cohort and five infantry cohorts based in Caesarea Maritima and one cohort in Jerusalem. The centurions of these units, however, were all Roman citizens. It was sort of a predecessor to what happened later in the colonial era where French and British officers would command troops who were raised in the country in question. And usually, though not always, they were posted away from their home area. So when we talk about the Romans in Judea, we're not really talking about Romans, except 
that you had to deal with centurions who were Romans. Rome, excuse me, centurions are mentioned several times in the Bible, and we're going to take a look at three specific examples in some detail. But before I begin, I have a question for you. How many soldiers are in a century? Wrong. There's 80 soldiers in a century. Now, the, the, the reasons why there's only 80 instead of 100, I won't go into. It's, it's a bit complicated. But nonetheless, it's lazy thinking to think that a century holds 100. And there's a lot of lazy thinking out there, as you'll find if you Google all of this stuff. Anyway, if anybody wants a further discussion, I'll be happy to talk about it at some other time. Anyway, let's look at some of the other references to centurions in the Bible. And we'll start with the book of Acts, since most of them are in the book of Acts. So let's look at Acts 22, verses 25 and 26. I hope it's on the screen. Well, it's not on the screen. This took place when the mob was trying to kill Paul. And the tribune who noticed the disturbance came down and dragged Paul in off away from the crowd. And because he didn't know who Paul was and thought maybe he was some sort of a revolutionary trying to undermine the role of Rome, he sent him off to be scourged. And that's when we get this warning from the centurion because you are not allowed to scourge Roman citizens just as you are not allowed to crucify Roman citizens. The second reference to centurions in the book of Acts is Acts 23, verse 17. And this is when Paul's nephew overhears the plot to kill Paul, those Jews who had sworn that they would get rid of him. Further reference is Acts 23, verse 23. And this is where a group of soldiers were put together to escort Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea Maritima. Interesting fact here that it took that many soldiers to protect one man. But it shows two things. One, that they took what Paul was saying very seriously and two, that they took the threat against Paul also very seriously, and they weren't going to allow anything to happen to Paul on his journey. The next verse I want to look at is Acts 24, verse 23. And this is when he goes before uh, uh, the authorities in Caesarea Maritima and is told that he can have a certain amount of liberty while decisions are taken as to what is going to happen to him. And the fourth one that I'm going to look at is Acts 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan Regiment. The Augustan Regiment... Augustan cohort, Augustan band, depending on your translation, is probably uh, cohorts primaris Augusta Etoriarum. And I mention that because I'll deal with it a little bit later on. 
There are also further references in Acts 27, which I won't go over, because that's the journey of Paul to Rome. You know, the centurion found a boat for them to travel. The centurion ignored Paul's advice that it was going to be a disaster this trip. The centurion, when the sailors, when the soldiers wanted to kill uh, uh, Paul, prevented them from doing that. The centurion stopped these sailors from abandoning the ship, otherwise there would have been disaster. And finally, the centurion, when they all got to Rome, handed over to the commander of the guard, likely the Praetorian guard. So there's a few other references, but those are the main ones talking about centurions in the book of Acts. But I want to look more specifically at three specific examples related to centurions in the Bible. So let's start by turning to Luke 7, verses 1 to 10. And I want to read through this, and you may want to read in your Bibles as well. Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. When he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourselves, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well, who had been sick. There's a number of things that we can take out of this particular passage. But for a start, we should note that in Capernaum, there was no Roman garrison whatsoever. It's likely that this centurion was one of the regional centurions that I talked about, or that alternatively he commanded a police detachment in Capernaum. It's also likely that he'd been there for a period of time because he had developed a confidence with the Jewish leaders. And given that we're talking about Gentiles and Jews and occupiers and occupied, it probably takes a fair amount of time to develop any element of trust. The centurion asked the elders to come out to meet with Jesus and to explain the problem. So why would he do this? I think there's probably two reasons. One, he perhaps felt that a Jew would be more receptive to an appeal made by other Jews than an appeal made directly by a non-Jew. And secondly, he probably recognized that Jews should not enter into the houses of Gentiles at that particular point in time. So he wanted to spare the problems that Jesus might have if others saw or knew that he entered into the house of a Jew. In verse 6, the centurion is quoted as saying, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. 
I am not worthy. Who else in the Bible said that they were not worthy? John the Baptist, I'm not worthy to unlatch the shoes of he will follow me. Or how about in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? The tax collector would not look up. He confessed, I am a sinner. He considered himself not to be worthy. But there's a message there for all of us because none of us are worthy. I'm not worthy. Neither is anyone else. But even though I am not worthy and no one else is worthy, that does not prevent us from going to God with our requests. That's what the centurion did. That's what we can do as well. Matthew's account is slightly different from Luke's account. In Luke's account, the elders go out first. Then as Jesus continues his journey, the friends come out, likely Roman friends, though it's not clear. In Matthew, the centurion himself comes out. Now, is this a case of some sort of contradiction between the verses of the Bible? Absolutely not, for two reasons. We have two writers focusing on an incident, so they focus on what they consider to be important. Secondly, you've got a continuum going on here. Christ comes to Capernaum, he meets the elders, he goes further in, he meets the friends, he keeps on going, he's close to the house, so the centurion comes out. All of those things took place. So we have to recognize that there is consistency in what the Bible is saying about this particular incident. It's also noteworthy that the message that the elders deliver to Jesus in Luke is the same message that the centurion then delivers personally to Jesus in Matthew. Is there any problem with that? Well, no. It's like, for example, if I tell my wife, when you see Brother Marvin, tell him X, Y, and Z. So she goes and sees Brother Marvin and tells him X, Y, and Z. And then later on, I see Brother Marvin, and I say, Marvin, X, Y, and Z. And Marvin looks at me kind of funny and says, your wife already told me that. There's no inconsistency in the fact that the message was repeated two times. So what do we see from this particular episode? We see quite clearly that Centurion had faith. And he had faith in a number of different ways. Hebrews 11.1 1 reminds us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The centurion had never seen Jesus. He had never met Jesus. He had heard about some of the miracles he had performed, but yet not having seen Jesus, he had faith in Jesus. The centurion believed that Jesus could heal it's difficult perhaps to believe that a touch could heal, but the centurion believed that even a word could heal. He had faith in the word of Jesus. And he had faith in the authority of Jesus. He recognized authority when he saw it because he had authority. He had authority given to him by the emperor to command troops to do what he told them to do. So he recognized in Christ that Jesus had the authority to heal 
by his words. He demonstrated his faith. Even as a Gentile, an occupier, a Roman, he had faith in a Jew, which the Pharisees did not. Quite the contrary. Throughout the New Testament, the Gospels, you'll find the Pharisees asking, give me a sign, show me a sign, do something. As it says in John 6, verse 30, what sign will you perform that we may see it and believe you? And yet the centurion didn't need a sign, he just believed. And that is faith. And that, again, is a message for all of us to have faith. The second episode involving a centurion is found in Acts 10 and 11. And I'm not going to go through all the verses because it's a long story in Acts 10 and its finale in Acts 11. But just generally speaking, Cornelius, a devout man who believed in God, who prayed constantly, had a vision from an angel. And Cornelius belonged to the Italian band, Italian regiment, Italian cohort, depending on your translation. And that unit was probably Cohors Segundus Italica Civica Romanorum. So why do I mention these two specific regiments specifically, the Augustan band and the Italian band? Very simple. Luke is very careful about giving historical details. He gives names, he gives dates, he gives places. And the fact that he gives the names of two regiments or cohorts which historically existed were in the particular region at that particular time further demonstrates the veracity of what Luke has written for us. So Cornelius has a vision and he's told to send men to Joppa to find Peter. Next day, Peter's hungry. He's up on the roof, and he has a vision. Three times, the sheet is lowered, filled with all kinds of, uh, of animals. And here I'll take another time out. This vision has nothing to do with eating all kinds of food. And if you ever come across that, you'll know that the person has not studied Acts 10 in a proper manner. Because what, those, what that vision is about is clearly explained in Acts 10. Some people don't bother to read it. But we all read it, right? So anyway, while he's pondering the vision, the men sent by Cornelius arrive. They explain their mission. And the next day, Paul, along with some witnesses, travels to, travels to go and visit the centurion in Capernaum. He meets with him, they discuss, and Paul is, excuse me, Peter is giving a lecture or a sermon when what happens? The Holy Spirit depends, descends upon Cornelius and his retinue, his family, and they begin to speak in tongues. And the Jewish witnesses that came along with Peter are absolutely amazed and astonished. Why? Why were they amazed and astonished? Because they thought that this could only happen to Jews as happened in Pentecost. 
because they thought that to become a convert, you had to become a Jew. You had to be circumcised. You had to accept all the rituals of the Jewish church. And yet here we had Gentiles who had nothing to do with Jewishness, overcome by the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. And because of that, Peter decided that they needed to be baptized and had them baptized. There's a number of key verses when we look at this story, which I just want to go over briefly. And key, the one key verse is uh, Acts 10, verse 28. You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Any man. The second key verse in this is Acts 10, verses 34 and 35. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. In every nation. Key verse, Acts 11, verse 17. So Peter is explaining exactly what happened. Because the Jewish, those of the circumcision, as they described, questioned him as to why he went into the house of a Gentile and ate with them. And Peter replies, If therefore God gave them some, the same gift as he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? And in verse 18, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. As mentioned previously, to be saved, you had to be Jewish. You had to become a proselyte. You have to give up your own ethnicity and beliefs and accept all things Jewish. But Cornelius did not have all the light, but he had an understanding of where truth lay. He was seeking the truth. He recognized that the Roman gods which his fellow countrymen worshipped were not the true God. He wanted to discover the true God. And his prayers, his constant prayers, as mentioned, were answered. I have heard people tell me that this whole incident demonstrates that God will accept people wherever they are. And that's not really true. God will invite people from wherever they are, but the people have to move to Christ. The people have to accept Christ because Christ is our only salvation. I want to move back and look at a third incident involving a centurion. And we move back from Acts to the Gospel, to the Gospels actually. And we're looking at the crucifixion of Christ. We start with Luke 23:47. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. It's also in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. In Matthew 27:54, we read, So when the centurion and those with him 
who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And as reported in Mark 15, verse 39, So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he stated, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, this centurion was likely a very junior centurion. It's highly unlikely that a senior centurion would want to be off doing crucifixion duty, which is quite unpleasant. So he was probably the most junior of centurions in that particular unit. And yet, and yet, he saw something that no one else saw. He saw something that rabbis and priests did not see. He saw something that the Pharisees did not see. He saw that Christ was the Son of God. And he was the first person after the death of Jesus to recognize the sonness of God. And yet he was a centurion. Now some people also point out to me, well, there's an inconsistency. It says in Luke he was a righteous man, but it says in Matthew and Mark that he was the Son of of God. Is there an inconsistency there? No, absolutely not. There was a lot going on that night. Jesus was hanging on the cross. The centurion was hearing him pray all the words that he addressed to his father. You had darkness for three hours. You had an earthquake. You had rocks falling. You had people panicking. All of those things going on. The centurion was there for all of those. He probably said a lot of things not recorded in Scripture because Scripture is focusing on key points. And he said both these things. There's no contradiction at all. The centurion spoke the truth in both cases. So we have three incidences involving centurions, three key incidences in the New Testament. So what do we get out of that? First is the issue of faith. Each and every one of those centurions demonstrated faith. The first centurion faith that Jesus could heal. The second centurion at the crucifixion faith that Jesus was the Son of God. And Cornelius, who was searching for the truth, had faith that he would find it, and he prayed that he would find it, and he did And he and his family became the first converts to the Christian church. But there's another message as well that we should take from that. And that is about salvation. And particularly salvation for all. Salvation is not reserved for any particular group. Salvation is not reserved for any particular country. Salvation is open to everybody who accepts Christ Jesus. And there's a progression here that we can see in these stories of the centurions. And actually we can look back to the beginning of that progression in Luke 2 when Simeon seeing the child Jesus says he will be a light unto the Gentiles. When Jesus went to the centurion in Capernaum he said in our Bible verse you know 
people will come from the east and west of the kingdom of, kingdom of God. But not yet. It's an indication through the faith of this centurion that this is something that's coming. When the centurion at the crucifixion said, this is the Son of God, he's reflecting that salvation comes through Christ who died on the cross. And that death on the cross was for everyone, including him, the centurion. When Cornelius prayed and his prayers were answered and he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he spoke in tongues and he was baptized, that is the realization that salvation is not just for one particular group who thought that salvation was just for them, but that salvation is for everybody, for each and every one of us. And that is something that we need to recognize today. Salvation is not just for people in our church. It's not just for people in our community. It's not just for people of our beliefs. It is open for each and every one of us and we should all remember that anyone on this planet is able to find salvation in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you very much.